Hello, Pastor Matt here. At New Life Baptist Church, we are pleased to be able to make these resources available to the public. Our desire is that these online resources or any other resources you find online would never be used to replace you joyfully belonging to a local church body, but rather that they would be supplemental for your walk with Christ. I pray that through this sermon, the word of the living God would stir your affections for Christ, strengthen your commitment to him, and broaden your understanding of who he is. Please grab your copy of God's word. Turn over to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. For our time together this morning, Hebrews chapter 10. The title of our sermon today is Because He Lives. Over the past three weeks, today being the fourth week, the final week, we have been considering the necessity and the sufficiency of the gospel. In other words, why do we need the gospel? And why is the gospel enough to save? We began by standing awestruck before the holiness of God. That He is altogether pure and righteous to a degree that He is completely unlike anything or any one. Then we move to see the stark contrast between his holiness and man's utter sinfulness. That we are born in sin, that we live in sin, and outside of Christ, we are dead in sin. Because of these twin realities, man stands condemned before. This holy God, whose holiness demands that justice be served in punishing sinners for their rebellion. With that, we established the need for the good news of the gospel. We've established that the reason why it's good news and why it's so good is because of the bad news and because of how bad the bad news is. Last week, we began to look at the other half of the coin of why the gospel saves. We saw that it's because he died. That's what we celebrated on Good Friday, is the death, the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ who is the one who laid down his life as a propitiation for our sins. That's what we covered last week. Today we will see the last part of the answer of why the gospel is enough to save. You see, Jesus didn't only die for our sins. You are all aware aware that today is Resurrection Sunday. A bit ago we read a text from Luke chapter 24, and hopefully you understand why this is such a day of celebration 
for Christians. Why? Because He lives. He is alive right now. That is a reality that I don't need to convince you of. You know it's true. Every single one of us knows God is real. And you know that you can't go dig up his bones right now. You know that the tomb is empty because Jesus Christ is real. He's alive and he reigns today. Hallelujah. The sacrificial lamb of God rose victorious as the conquering lion of Judah. Make no mistake, Christianity is about walking in humility. But don't mistake that for us serving a soft, pillowy God. He is the lion of Judah. He is the king of kings. He reigns supreme right now. That's the God that we serve. What a marvelous truth our faith is built upon. While just the fact that he was resurrected from the dead is a staggering enough truth for us to spend many, many lifetimes on, why does it matter that he rose from the grave? In other words, why does it matter that we can't just stop and say that he simply died for us? Why does it matter that he is alive? By God's grace, hopefully, by the end of our time together, we will have that understanding as we finish looking at the sufficiency of the gospel. If you would, please take your Bible and stand with me as we read our text this morning. It's going to be Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. This is the word of the living God. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly 
the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a staggering text this is. Lord, how can I, in my limitations and in my frailty, even begin to describe the events that took place that we are celebrating today? If not by the power of the Spirit, I pray that right now, Lord, that you would empower me to faithfully preach this text. And above that, that you would empower every single person in this room who's here this morning to receive this word as though it was from God because we know that this is an inspired text. Lord, we want to be changed by your word today. We want to know this Jesus who rose from the grave. I pray that you would work the same by the same resurrection power that you brought him forth from the grave, that you would bring us forth this morning. Work that power in each and every one of us this morning, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. You can be seated. The book of Hebrews is made up of 13 chapters and 303 profound verses that are stuffed with Old Testament references and images from the Mosaic Law. You probably got a sense of that as we read through that. Maybe some of the references didn't make a lot of sense. Hopefully we will be able to explain that so that you can get a better understanding. We don't know who the writer of Hebrews is as there is not any identifying statement made, but we do know that the author had a very solid grasp of the law and the work of Christ on the cross. It's with these two that the author spends most of his time on, the law and the work of Christ on the cross. Namely, he wants to show how vastly superior a sacrifice Christ's life is than what was set up under the law of Moses. He uses words for better or more or superior and greater almost 20 times in this letter, always trying to say, or saying effectively rather, that Jesus Christ is greater, that his sacrifice is better, that he is all that we need. In order to show that Christ's 
work is better, superior, and greater, the author crafts an argument of lesser to greater, beginning with the law. So he goes on to display why the law is lesser and why Jesus Christ is greater. Now, let me pause and give a bit of a caveat here. You and I have never grown up under the law of Moses. We're not familiar with the sacrificial system that they lived under many, many years ago. And thank God for that. It is because the, right, the words of the author of Hebrews are true, that the sacrifice of Christ is greater. However, though we don't live under works of the law, you and I are predisposed to earning our own salvation. If you are not in Christ this morning, your life is given to your own self-righteousness. What you are doing is hoping that at the end of your life, when you cross over into eternity and you stand before the great white throne of judgment and you stand and behold the holiness of God, what you are hoping is that you will hold up your own self-righteousness and say, see, I'm a good person. And that he's going to look upon you and say, well, yes, you are. Come enter into eternal rest. But the reality is that the picture that is portrayed for us throughout scriptures, which are true, is that instead what will happen that day is that you will enter into eternal condemnation. A life that was lived in perfect morality. A good life. You were a good person. You were an activist. You cared about the environment. You voted with your heart. You loved your family. You paid your taxes. You never got in trouble with the law. All of that will amount to absolutely zero as you stand before the holiness of God. This is why the gospel offends us. It's because we hear that and we say, no, 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 not me. That's what you Christians believe. But let us all rest assured this morning that one day we will all find out, won't we? One day it is appointed for all men to die. And one day we will find out, Lord willing, on that day what you will find out is that you trusted in the righteousness of Jesus. How can you do that? Let's look. First, we're going to consider the shadow cast. This is our first title in the bulletin that you have before you. The shadow cast. Our, the author here says that the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So last week, we spent a bit of our time together walking through some of the Old Testament sacrificial system. We saw that the Jewish people were taught by the Lord that it's the spilled blood of an animal that covers or atones for their sins. You know that the wages of sin is death. A death is required because of our sin. Thus, the Lord set up for His people the sacrificial system whereby their sins could be atoned for by the sacrifice of an animal. The animal would die in their place instead of the person. Now, is this because God just loves to kill animals? No, He's teaching them something. 
This is what is meant by the law had a shadow. It's meaning that it was pointing to something greater, something coming. It was prefiguring what was to come. As the author says, the good things to come. The law was just a shadow of the better realities. It was to teach them of the holiness of God, of the consequences of sin. And perhaps that's why we don't really feel that today. It's because we didn't grow up that way and it sounds foreign to our ears. But what the Israelites were being taught is that God is holy. You cannot just come to Him as you please. He is holy. He is not like us. A shadow is a faint outline. It's a vague representation of reality. I was speaking with a pastor, a friend, who was telling me when he first arrived at his church, what they used to do for Easter. He said that they had, I don't know how to explain this because I'm just a man, but they had partitions, those room partitions that are made out of that white translucent light that you can cast a shadow on. They're privacy partitions, and it's meant to keep private what's going on behind them, but still, if a light is shining, a shadow is cast upon this partition. Well, he said that they had these on their stage, and what they would do is they would act out different parts of the Easter story. Namely, what was done behind that partition was acted out the Lord's Supper. So they would sit at a table behind this partition, and in the crowd, you're just getting a vague, faint idea of what's going on aren't you? You just see shadows, and they're just vague, and you can't really make out, well, who's that? Well, who's that? Who's that person supposed to be? A shadow can cast the moving of a cup from the table to the mouth, but you don't know what's in the cup. You don't know what color the cup is. You don't know what everyone's wearing. You don't know what the room looks like. You don't know what's on their plate. You don't know what the table looked like. So there's a lot of detail that's left out because it's a shadow. It's only meant to be a mimic, a vague portrayal. And in the same way that a shadow can't pick up the cup, so the writer is, of, of Hebrews is telling us that the shadow, the law, cannot wipe away our sin. It was only able to cover our sin. And worse, today, our self-righteousness only serves to ease our own conscience, but does nothing before the holiness of God. This is what he means. You're not getting the full detail. You don't get the full picture. You just have a vague idea, this faint representation of what was To come. This is how the law functioned prior to Christ. The law, namely the sacrificial system, was meant only to prefigure what was to come. The law was the shadow cast by the substance who is Jesus Christ. They were being taught of substitutionary atonement that something else dies in your place to teach them. Show them a shadow of what was to come. If you turn over to chapter 9, we get a little bit of a better idea of what this looked like. 
chapter 9 of Hebrews, verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. That's the temple or the, the tabernacle, or as it says, the tent. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. The covenant here is the law of Moses. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, the holy place, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes into the most holy place, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Okay, what's going on here? The temple was set up in such a way, think of it in your Old Testament, they had temple worship and a sacrificial system. The temple was set up in such a way that there were walls around the outer court. And then there was a temple inside of these walls. And as you walked into the temple, which you and I could not do, the priest would go into the, the first section of the temple. This was the holy place. The second section, there was a curtain in there. Behind that curtain was the most holy place or what you might have heard referred to as the Holy of Holies. Back there, only the high priest, that means the main priest, only he could go back there, and he could only go there once a year, and he could only go there that once a year if he atoned for his sins and the sins of his family. This was called the Day of Atonement. You've probably seen on your calendar a reference to a holiday that you have no idea what it is, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. It was once a year the people would have their sins atoned for. And this is what the author is referring to back in chapter 10. That year after year they were reminded of their sins because they would come to the temple they would have to be reminded of their sins. They're here to have their sins covered for one more year. And what would happen is they would have two goats and a ram. The priests would draw, cast lots for the two goats. One goat would be sacrificed. And that blood would be sprinkled in the most holy place to atone for the sins of the people. And the ram was to atone for the sins of the priests. And the second goat, the priest would lay his hands on the goat, confess all of the sins of the people, and this goat would be led out into the wilderness and let go, signifying the carrying away of the sins of the people. 
You see, this is a complicated ritual, isn't it? You're, a lot of eyes are glossing over right now. Like, what are you talking about exactly? This was a shadow, though. You see, all of this was set up just to prefigure something, just to teach us something, namely, that you can't come into the presence of God when you are stained with sin. They had to bring the blood of the goat and of the ram to atone for their sins. And they only had access to this holy place, which signified God's dwelling place. They could only come in there once a year. Praise God that we don't live in those times. But thank God that this is here to teach us of what we are so fortunately receiving in Christ Jesus. But the sins of the people could never be finally taken away. They were only temporarily covered until the next year where they had the Day of Atonement. And this is what is meant in chapter 10, verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there was a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is why verses 5 through 7 are so beautiful. Our second heading today is the sacrifice made. Let's read it. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. My ESV translates consequently in the verse but if you have the NASB or NIV or New King James, it opens up by saying, therefore. In other words, what he is writing is, for this reason, because the law was a shadow, because the sacrificial system could never take away sins from the people, because of that, because it was only pointing to the good things to come, that's why Jesus said what he said. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Jesus is quoting here from Psalm chapter 40, which is a psalm of David. And the words were written by the hand of David in that psalm, but most truly spoken by the mouth of Jesus as he donned the likeness of man. You see, the old sacrificial system, the keeping of the rituals to the T, was not what was pleasing to God. The Day of Atonement was not what was pleasing to God They were just to teach us. He wasn't interested in the killing of animals. These animals could never be a sufficient sacrifice. Their blood is not precious enough to finally remove the stain of sin on God's people. No, this was to show us the cost of sin, the demand of justice when God's commands are broken. It's always been about the heart. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, King Saul finds this out with a harsh rebuke from Samuel. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. In other words, what God desires is people to live lives of obedience to Him. For His commands not to be consistently trampled upon and transgressed against and sinned against and His holiness and His name run through the mud. What He desires instead is not the sacrifice, but that we would obey Him. The sacrifices became a necessity because holiness was not a priority. This really reaches a climax in Isaiah 1 as the Lord states His disgust with the sacrificial system. He says, away with this. He says He's grown tired of your sacrifices. Why? Because the people were living in blatant hypocrisy. And they were only offering sacrifices to cover their sins. But they had no interest in following what God had to say. They had no interest in really living a life pleasing to God. They just wanted to say, hey God, I did it, I did it. I went through the religious ritual, is that not enough for you? God had grown tired of this. It wasn't the temple sacrifice anyway, it was a shadow. He always wanted obedience, not the sacrifice. This is an important word for us today, lest we be tempted to go through the motions of worship. Lest we be tempted to just sing songs and mumble along and just go through the motions when we pick up our Bible in the morning and just to be able to say, I did it, I read my Bible, yay. Aren't you happy now, God? It would be better that you didn't with that sort of heart because God desires obedience. You know what first and foremost we must be obedient to? You shall love the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. God knew that this was just a shadow, so he sent his son. I love what it says here, that when Christ came into the world, The Word became flesh. The one who created this earth stepped into creation. That is an astounding fact. And he said, a body you have prepared for me. This points us to the incarnation where the Son of God took on human flesh to dwell among us. Jesus Christ came into the world to do the will of the Father. It's not the sacrifice of bulls and goats that pleases God. But now, one had arrived who can please God. Jesus. He was able to lead the life that was a hundred and thousand percent pleasing to God. Never failing, never sinning, never saying something wrong, never thinking the wrong thing, never for a second not loving the Lord his God with all his mind, heart, soul, and strength. In other words, the life that you and I are supposed to live but can't. Jesus lived it. He came and dwelt in this body that was prepared for him. Why? Because the Father desires obedience over sacrifice. 
No one ever displayed perfect obedience like our Lord. All of the Old Testament points to what it is that the Messiah would do, and the Son of God knew all that He must endure and said, Yes, Father. He would go on to fulfill all the will of God as written and revealed in the scroll of the book. In other words, what was prophesied of Him in the Old Testament. In the Garden of Gethsemane, this is perfectly displayed. He tells his disciples in Matthew 26, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He knew his hour had arrived. The body that was prepared for him would soon be crushed. Crushed, bearing the sin of his people. Crushed through the Roman scourge. Crushed on the cross as he bore the wrath of God that was meant for you. Crushed because he was the good thing that the law was a shadow of. The reality, the true form had finally come. And on the day of atonement, the one day of atonement that we'll ever need, the son was crushed. He knew that he was here to atone for the sins of his people, but he didn't back down. He prays in agony, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. This is what he had come for, to drink the cup of God's wrath. His heart was set, his eyes fixed on the prize that lay beyond the suffering. He endured all that was prophesied of him. The mockery, the slapping, the nails in the hand, the wagging of the head, the sin of his people in his body, the wrath of God upon him. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Father laid upon him the chastisement of us all. Do you understand that this morning? This is what Jesus went through. John chapter 19, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Knowing that all was now finished. In other words, he was the better sacrifice because he was obedient unto the point of death. He fulfilled everything. And he said on that cross, it is finished. It is done. He had been perfect his whole life. And the Father made him to be sin who knew no sin for you and me. God's will was perfectly completed. And this is why we see the superiority of this sacrifice revealed. Our third heading, verses 8 through 10 when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How amazing that is. Our author does a quick exposition of the passage quoted by Jesus. He says in verse 9 that Christ does away with the first. What does that mean? 
He does away with the sacrificial system. He does away with the old covenant. He fulfilled it. He fulfilled the law. You don't have to anymore. He did it for you. Stop trying to earn your own salvation. You can't. Jesus did it for you. He fulfilled it all perfectly. 100% it was done and He did away with the old to establish the new. Why is it superior? Why is the superiority revealed? Why is this a superior sacrifice? Because it was the sacrifice of the precious Son of God. Because He fulfilled the law perfectly. Because He fulfilled all that was written of Him. Because He did the will of God without failing. Because He was faithful unto death. Because the Father desires obedience more than sacrifice. Yet His holiness and justice demand that sin be punished. So Christ Jesus, displaying perfect obedience, was the only sacrifice worthy, sufficient to finally atone for the sins of the people. Not once every year, once for all time. That is absolutely astounding. Once for all time, that is how perfect and beautiful and majestic and marvelous our Lord is. The one ounce of His spilled blood is enough for everyone. This one sacrifice is now enough for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus, past, present, and future. His one sacrifice, because of who He is and what He's done, is enough to sanctify us once for all. We no longer need to carry on the old sacrificial system. We no longer need to try to earn our own salvation. We no longer need to abide by strict religious code. His sacrifice is superior because it was not an unwitting animal spilling its blood. It was truly God and truly human, the person of Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect, blameless life. He's the one who spilled his blood. His sacrifice is superior because it's Jesus. It's not a goat. The writer says in verse 4 that the blood of bulls and goats can never do away with the sins of people. Only the blood of Jesus can. Lastly, fourth rather, we see the seat taken. Because all of this would be for naught if Christ had stayed in the grave. Verses 11 through 14, I just want to call your attention to two words. Verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The priest stands in service day after day, doing what can't ever take away the sins of people. He's standing, indicating that he's still working. Jesus sat down in the throne room where he is still seated because his work is complete, because it is finished. Do you understand that? He's sitting 
because he has no more work to do. He did it. He lived the life. He died the death. He bore our sins. And when God brought him back to life, he said, certified, authentic to everything that Jesus ever said, everything he ever taught, he validated his entire life. Romans 1.4 says that he was shown, proven to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, if Jesus were still dead, if we could leave here right now and go to his grave and dig up his bones, everything that we do would be pointless. You'd be better off to sleep in on Sunday. You'd be better off to just live as you please. We would be most to be pitied if Jesus was still dead. But he's not dead. He's alive right now. And because he lives, people who are dead in their trespasses and sins can also be made alive. Because the same power that brought him from the grave will bring dead men back to life. He died as a criminal, but now he reigns forever as king. Seated. That's why we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday. Because he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The good thing has come. The reality, the true form of the realities has finally arrived, doing away with the old covenant. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. With Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. What does that mean? That Christ is alive. And when grace comes to your life, you are made alive. You are brought from the dead. And you now can live the rest of your life in eager expectation for the day when you will see him again. He came the first time and fulfilled everything. He came the first time proving that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. He will come again because he keeps his word. Lastly, we see the secured covenant. The Holy Spirit bears witness to us for after saying that this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. He's quoting here from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. If you'd like to go and read that. But I want to read just one verse. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the covenant secured. Behold, the days have come in which he has made this new covenant. You see, the, the thing about this is, why does this matter? Under the old covenant, the old system, under the law of Moses, we were told Keep this law 
and it will go well with you. Well, guess what happened is that Israel did not keep that law. It did not go well with them. In other words, they broke the covenant. It was broken. So God turned his back and abandoned the people because the covenant was broken. But now, we're under a new covenant that God has kept. We are under a new covenant that was purchased by the blood of Jesus and sealed with his resurrection. In other words, this covenant is unbreakable for the people of God. His laws are written in permanent ink on your heart and on your mind. And you are in the palm of His hand and no one can take you out of His hand. Not even you. This is the new covenant that we live in thanks to Jesus. We would not have this covenant if He were still dead. We would not have this covenant if His body was not broken. We would not have this covenant if He was not perfectly obedient. But you see where Israel and all of mankind failed to keep covenant, Jesus kept it for us. So now, Hebrews 7.22 says that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. This new covenant gives us absolute assurance that our sins are forgiven and forgotten. It has truly been said, that God is quicker to forgive our sins than we are to ask for forgiveness. We live in our sin. Sometimes we enjoy to condemn ourselves. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know if you know the Lord or not. But what I do know is that He's made a way for you. It doesn't matter how sinful you are right now. It doesn't matter how far you are from God. It really doesn't matter what you've done in your life. You know why? Because if you put your faith in Jesus, you are signing up with the rest of us who can say, Jesus bore my sin. He took it for you. He took the wrath that you deserve. He died the death that you deserve. And he was resurrected on that fateful morning so that you can be resurrected from your deadness and sin. How do you respond? Flee to Jesus. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or come to the front. I'm going to implore you to flee to Christ. Fall upon him in faith. Repent of your sins. Call on his name in the Bible, my God, whom I serve, who is alive today, promises that you will be saved. And you know what? Your sins will be forgotten. The Lord promises that as far as the east is from the west, so far shall your sins be cast from you. The omniscient all-knowing, almighty God will choose to forget them because Jesus paid for it. Why do we need the gospel? Because God is holy and man is sinful. 
Why does the gospel save? Because he died and because he lives.